1: Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much, Regina. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a partnership with the Association for Molecular Pathology and Cancer Care. And today's program is Understanding Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers. Um, And today's program is supported by Foundation Medicine and an educational grant from Exact Sciences Corporation. And today's program has many participants. We have over 250 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Iraq, Lithuania, Nepal, Portugal, United Kingdom, so this is really a global call as well. And we're delighted to have all of you on this important program today. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. And Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Wayne, Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing an overview a definition of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the context of COVID and seasonal flu and why the molecular portrait of cancer is important. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris.
3: Uh, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you to everyone for joining us today. Um, I think the uh, first thing to, to share with all the uh, attendees is, you know, this is a, a totally new uh, piece of knowledge for everybody, I think including your practitioners Um, the and caregivers. You know, it is something that we are all learning together. Uh, It is complex, it's changing, and I urge you to be very open about asking uh, your caregivers any question you have about this whole uh, area of biomarkers and and tests. Uh, Just some simple definitions of biomarker. Uh, A biomarker is something that you can measure. It's a substance that you can measure. Uh, And in the context of cancer, uh, that substance that you measure is a defining characteristic of the cancer under study, or in your case, your cancer. So it's just something that tells you something about your cancer. A couple of quick words. So our first job in evaluating a cancer is to make 100% sure that it is cancer. Uh, And in 2023, it can only be done by a pathologist or cytologist, and it requires the examination of a body tissue or a body fluid. There is no blood test. There is no scan. That can be used to diagnose cancer in 2023. I know people say, "Oh, I had a PET scan; it showed I had cancer." The answer is, it did not. Um, That can only be done by a pathologist. The next question that can uh, needs to be answered is the site of origin of the cancer, and then lastly, the type of cancer that you have. Uh, Like within the field of uh, uh, lung cancer, again, I'm a lung cancer specialist. I'm going to be talking about lung cancer, uh, the different types. So. How do we go about interrogating a cancer? I think the first uh, order of um, testing is done by the pathologist, and it involves a testing of tissues, also called histology, or a testing and examination of cells. So many of you may have had a biopsy where they stick a tiny needle into a tumor, or they take some bodily fluid, um, our pathologists are so uh, accurate and precise, they can look at that fluid, look at those cancer cells, and and tell you, uh, A, it is cancer, A, the likely type of cancer, and and even more about that. Uh, After the visual examination of the cancerous tissues, the next step is something called immunohistochemistry. I know that's a, uh, a crazy word Um, IHC is the abbreviation for it and basically what it is is staining uh, the tumor tissue or the cells that have been removed Uh, and you and that staining reveals the presence of certain proteins probably the most important ones that that have been checked are in breast cancer the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor Um, HER2 is another protein commonly checked by the immunohistochemistry PSA as well in uh, solid tumors, there's often uh, immunohistochemistry testing for the pdl one test. Uh, that's a measure of responsiveness of the cancer to the uh, immunotherapeutic drugs uh, and very, very commonly used. So, again, it's looking at a protein, and it's a test done by a pathologist by looking at the presence of that protein under a microscope. Uh, the other... Um, role of examining tissues is looking at the DNA and sometimes the RNA. DNA is sort of the the big one that's looked at now. What happens is the pathologist uh, takes the tissue specimens or cellular specimens, extracts the DNA, and then through uh, uh, complex analyses is able to analyze the DNA for DNA patterns that come from cancers. And why is that important? Well, Certain cancers require substances to make them grow. And if those substances aren't there, the cancer cells will die. Probably the best uh, example of that is the uh, EGFR can- lung cancer. If this EGFR mutation is present, the DNA-based test, you know that uh, drugs that target that mutation, a drug called osimertinib, is likely to be very effective. The flip side of that is that if you don't have that protein, pre- that mutation present, that that medicine will not help. So even if um, you don't find that uh, substance, you don't find that characteristic that leads to the uh, treatment with a specific drug, you at least are put in another direction. You know not to spend time and risk side effects in taking a drug that's very, very unlikely to use to be used. And I should add that this has become more and more important uh, in in a lot of different cancers. In lung cancers, for example, the um, requirements of the FDA label are that you must not have an EGFR mutation present or must not have an ALK rearrangement present. So by finding that you don't have these mutations. I know many people are dismayed when that happens, but it does point you in another direction that immunotherapies are much more likely to be helpful. And conversely, if you have the EGFR mutations, uh, uh, the uh, uh, presence of the uh, mutation tells you that immunotherapeutic drugs are not helpful. There's a couple of other tests too. analyzing the results from the DNA test. They get something called tumor mutation burden. A high tumor mutation burden uh, suggests a greater sensitivity to immune drugs and something called MSI, (microsatellite instability. It's another calculation, if it were, from the DNA-based test, and that tells you, again, sensitivity or not to the immunotherapeutic drugs. The next group of medicines, uh, uh, group of uh, substances that are looked at, are uh, in the blood. And again, blood proteins, probably the best examples of that would be PSA or CSA, or CEA rather. And lastly, DNA-based testing. Uh, in the blood, and that's a so-called liquid biopsy. Sometimes you can find those very same mutations you can find in tissue in the blood. Uh, it's generally a faster test. It's generally a more convenient test. It can be done in all kinds of practice settings, doesn't require a biopsy, and is very helpful. So it's great in that way, but unfortunately, it's not quite as sensitive as the tissue-based test, and often the uh, panels that are done are not as comprehensive as the tissue one. So while it's a very helpful test, it's not a perfect one. So the bottom line here is that these tests done primarily through the work of pathologists and molecular pathologists they define the cancer and can help your practice team make the best decisions one quick word about covid and the flu covid is still here uh, probably at epidemic proportions and influenza is here i know in the state of new york uh, by bef- uh, by christmas time A quarter of a million persons had had a test that diagnosed influenza A. So please, 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 unless you are allergic to the vaccines, get all the COVID vaccines that are recommended for you. Get the flu vaccine as well. They are your best protection from getting serious illness. I will tell you in my practice, people with lung cancer, since the vaccines have come out, I haven't had a single person uh, be hospitalized because of COVID or uh, have a worse outcome than that. Uh, the, uh, the other thing to remember is when you have a positive test for flu or influenza, please call your health care provider. There are medications to be given to help uh, in Increase the odds you won't get um, terribly ill, and that would be the Paxlovid for the COVID and the uh, the drug called the Tamiflu for the uh, flu. So if you're sick, get tested. If you have a positive test, talk to your healthcare providers. Take the medicines you need, and by all means, get your uh, flu and COVID shots, and, and please use uh, your influence on your family to get them to get their flu and COVID shots. Uh, it protects you and protects them as well.
2: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Chris. That was outstanding, and such an outstanding message to everybody. You really set the stage for today's program, and uh, just a stellar presentation. But also, um, your the information, um, in addition to the all the information you provided, was the importance of everyone getting um, their COVID vaccines and all of them, and also their flu shots. So, thank you. Thanks so much. And um, our our next speaker. Is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, myeloproliferative neoplasms program member, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing how diagnostic technologies and biomarkers shape and improve treatment decisions in clinical trials. How research increases your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to okay. my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. <laughs>
4: Thank you, Carolyn, and and everyone for joining. And uh, Mark, that was a fantastic uh, start. Um, So I'm a leukemia physician. So um, when I speak about some of these topics, I'm going to take the perspective of blood cancers because they've taught us a lot. Um, We're speaking today about biomarkers and and diagnostics and how we've come a long way. And I think that's an understatement. Um, If we think about blood cancers uh, as a paradigm, many, many years ago, we actually didn't have very good clarity at all about what type of blood cancer was, what someone might have and and what the origin of it was and how to treat it. Well, that being said, you know, brave scientists with great ideas, you know, back now almost um, three quarters of a century ago identified that if you targeted certain elements of a cancer, such as the dependency on folic acid, Sidney Farber at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center um, treated pediatric leukemia very successfully by simply um, recognizing that that leukemia cells needed um, a certain type of folic acid and and had certain deficiencies in folic acid metabolism. And we still use that kind of approach today. We've basically tried to figure out what makes a cancer tick. So if we didn't really know much about the cancer itself, of course the first inventions were identifying the characteristics of leukemia. What does it look like? What type of cell is it? And our pathologists, of course, are vital in that regard. Mark, Dr. Chris, rather, um, gave us, you know, the, the most important line is that you don't have a cancer until a pathologist has looked at a, a biopsy, a sample, a diagnostic test tool, and can confirm that the uh, the tissue, the sample, the uh, material has the characteristics. And, you know, we are certain that it's a cancer because uh, we can be fooled. But um, beyond what a leukemia, for example, might look at, where we were able to divide leukemias into acute and chronic leukemias and whether they came from different white blood cells called lymphocytes or myelocytes, we then had the explosion of technology at the diagnostic level where we were able to understand the blueprints and what makes these cells tick and what makes them tick faster, tick louder, and tick wrong. Probably the best example was the disease area I've been privileged to work in called chronic myeloleukemia, where... Actually, quite a while ago, 1960s, the, um, the discovery of the fact that all the cells related to this disease called chronic myeloid leukemia had a specific chromosome fingerprint abnormality, or essentially their chromosomes had swapped. I call it uh, the Reese's peanut butter top phenomenon, chocolate, my peanut butter, and peanut butter, my chocolate. And the chromosomes had swapped material and created an abnormal protein. And we knew about that, and, and then the science really went from there, and we and we'd understood, well, what, what does that do? And the, the beauty of it is we had great diagnostics. The blood in this cancer was very readily available, and over time, we were able to quantify the amount of this abnormal protein very well. Alongside of that, we developed therapeutics, which were able to target this, um, this um, abnormal protein, and that was the recipe for success. If you had a great diagnostic tool, a biomarker, a marker of a cancer, and a the therapeutic that would target that, you can say... The treatment's working at a very specific level, and if you have a narrow cancer treatment that is fortunately generally less side effects and sometimes even very minimal side effects, you really want to make sure you're hitting your target. And, boy, if you hit the target, the story in CML is quite a good one and that we now have functional cure for patients and one of the highest remission rates we've ever seen, um, a complete turnaround from a disease that was often fatal in just a few years. Um, But the story continued, of course, and molecular diagnostics and sort of figuring out what makes the cancer tick is now an agenda for all cancers. Uh, Dr. Chris mentioned a lot of areas in solid tumors. I'll give you an example in broader leukemia, a trial called Myelomatch. And myelom means white blood cells and match. I think we know what that means. So a very uh, large group of patients through a study done in the United States in the cooperative groups uh, where doctors come together outside of their any other relationships just academic collaborators come together to say, we can look at people with AML and myelodysplasia sort of the the main threats to, um, in in the in white blood cell cancers that can come after chemotherapy with age can come in kids and adults, or for no reason at all in some cases um, can we characterize them at the very beginning, understand what makes them tick, and then narrow down the journey that patients should be taking with growth to chemotherapy we've come a long way in those disease areas where previously we only had broad treatments that would essentially hurt abnormal white blood cells more than other white blood cells or other healthy cells and bring the cancer volume down. Now we know um, to look for certain targets, things that make the cells grow faster, such such as something called FLT3, uh, enzymes that are abnormal, and they actually, the, the metabolic pathways of cells called IDH. So all of our technologies to understand the genetics of cancer, the molecular changes in cancer cells, all under the umbrella of biomarkers, definitely shape um, how we make a diagnosis, how we sort of clarify diagnosis, and how we, how we make decisions about treatment. We used to just treat um, blood cancers based on their um, appearance under the microscope. That actually has fallen down the ladder of importance, and we really now focus mostly on what's making this thing tick so we can diffuse the bomb. Um, In the last few minutes, I think I'd want to segue into how in clinical trials such research increases your treatment options. I mentioned the trial, the myelomatch trial in acute leukemia. We've done, obviously, a host of work across cancers. But most cancer trials today, if they're not primarily looking at what the fingerprint or what the signature of the cancer is, they're looking at it at least from the perspective of collecting that information to learn from it. So at all um, opportunities possible, um, when you can get – full diagnostic for our cancers, and it often requires folks to be okay with other samples, more blood draws, maybe an additional biopsy sometimes. Make sure you hear about why that's important and how that can help. It might not um, help in the immediate near term for someone's specific treatment, it, but it certainly could be something to look at in the future, and and often it can help all of us a, a, as a community of, of of cancer doctors and patients trying to get to a finish line to a cure and to try to better treat cancer. But um, research in general sometimes can encompass just learning about a tumor. It doesn't necessarily change treatment. That's important. Sometimes it is learning more about a cancer with the future prospects of treatment, such as the myelomatch or other trials. Sometimes it's directly saying, what is my cancer? What's making it tick? What do I need right now to get the best chances of, of response or cure? So, so be be open and and ask about research as it's related to your cancer treatment, because the world of good that can be done from research is is immense. And again, there are many layers of of benefits that can come from um, the uh, opportunities in research. Not only getting the best treatment, but um, helping us get to better diagnostics and better cures. So, um, on that, I'll uh, I'll hand it back.
2: Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really outstanding and a stellar presentation. And also just really explaining further about how uh, these technologies and biomarkers really improve treatment decisions and just the importance of clinical trials, which really, when you think of all the years of, um, I know you've been in the field, all the advances that have occurred because people have been willing to participate in clinical trials, it makes such a big difference. Thank you so much in terms of the treatment of today. And our next speaker is Dr. Tanyos Bikai Saab. Dr. Bikai Saab is leader, gastrointestinal cancer program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, professor Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, consultant Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And Dr. Bikai Saab will be addressing the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine, and predicting response to treatment. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bikai Saab.
5: Well, thank you dr Messner. It's a pleasure to be uh, on this uh, program a lot of a lot of great talks and a lot of exciting uh, uh, changes in 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 the way we uh, we treat and select uh, patients for uh, for uh, 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 treating cancer overall uh, and some of the most important aspects of what we do have been uh, specifically in the world of precision oncology or precision medicine in oncology, um, when we think about uh, the treatments, as was alluded to, you know, a lot of the treatments have moved from, um, you know, the traditional chemotherapy. Which, you know, we want to make sure that uh, it's clearly understood that chemotherapy has a significant role in the treatment of, of cancers overall. Uh, and 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 unlikely to uh, uh, be moved uh, out of the equation for for quite a while. Still has utility, but more and more, uh, what we're seeing is the advent of these biomarkers uh, that uh, essentially facilitate uh, uh, selecting better uh, patients for certain treatments, certain targets, or even immune therapy. Uh, in 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 many ways, and, and and focusing more on the solid tumors, and you know my area of specialty is gastrointestinal cancers. Well, there has been significant improvements over the last uh, two decades. Uh, it has become clearer and 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 that uh, uh, biomarker testing um, in uh, the initial phase of treatment planning. Uh, for patients with various cancers uh, is key to essentially have the best treatment options, not just in one line, but multiple lines of therapy for patients. It also, in the earlier stages of cancer, can help us uh, or direct us uh, essentially uh, to uh, immune therapy or more target therapies where indicated. And even in many, in many cases would help us understand whether there's a genetic predisposition for the cancer, which has certainly different implications than uh, selection of treatment uh, options. Uh, so the, the, the key biomarkers, for example, in colorectal cancer, uh, just to choose one disease, uh, include four at least. Uh, there are many others as well. But four essentials to take a decision about uh, you know what is the best uh, treatment option to start with? Um, and we've seen, for example, the role of uh, microsatellite instability, high um, tumors uh, and the role of immune therapy uh, that uh, for many patients uh, with more advanced cancer can uh, bring those diseases in, in most patients into some form of remission and permanent remission for many. Uh, And this is key, because what what happened, for example, in colon cancer, and we'll move to other cancers as well, is we've seen that this started in the more refractory setting, meaning patients that have had multiple treatments um, before making it to immune therapy based on on the presence of of microsatellite instability high. Ultimately, moving to the first line, replacing chemotherapy, uh, which... Uh, and 4% of the patients with advanced colon cancer um, has uh, literally for half of the patients gotten them a- a- in the way of never getting chemotherapy in their lifetime uh, as those tumors went into permanent remission. Just incredible, incredible results. To so ultimately now moving to the earlier stages of the disease, meaning in the uh, what we would consider a curative stage of the disease where surgery is indicated, just you remove the tumor, maybe give chemotherapy afterwards. Um, What we're finding out from various studies now here in Europe is that in those patients who who have this microsatellite instability high, for example, uh, uh, applying immune therapy uh, early in the stage of the disease may even prevent some patients from the need of surgical resection of their tumors. That's pretty incredible. We're curing patients now without the need for surgery in the earlier stages of cancer in that small subset of patients. So that's one example of how uh, uh, we've used uh, identification of of, uh, a target, uh, which predicts for – and and we're not going specifically after that target. I'll go through details where we're going specifically after the target. But this this element essentially helps us understand – uh, the characteristics of the tumor that makes it more responsive to immune therapy, and we've moved uh, essentially these treatment uh, these treatment options from more refractory setting to the earlier stages, and curing more and more patients. Um, there are also those that uh, are specifically uh, uh, targeted. Uh, you know, across multiple solid tumors, there's a protein called HER2, a gene uh, uh, that essentially HER2 gene that. Um, specifically, uh, uh, essentially, codes for this, for this receptor that, if amplified, ends up being, um, for the purposes of treatment, um, uh, an indication that this cancer may have as its primary driver, its primary, uh, essentially, driver, uh, this HER2 uh, receptor. And we have a number of agents that target HER2. Uh, and so it got established first in breast cancer, where we go specifically after this target, changing the outcomes of patients, again, initially in the more refractory setting, then in the uh, uh, of earlier settings, and then ultimately into early-stage cancer, um, moving a lot of patients uh, into uh, uh, significant improvements in their overall outcomes. Uh, and, and not only that, we learned that if this target is present that we can target it, but it turns out that we can target it differently multiple times across the lifetime of the treatment, uh, which, which essentially, you know, has, has moved us away uh, from these uh, chemotherapy agents in, in this subset of patients. We ultimately, as we learn more and more that this, this specific uh, receptor can be amplified uh, so this gene can essentially uh, be, uh, be be amplified across uh, multiple malignancies, not just breast. So we started, at least you know, in, in GI cancers, looking at its role in gastric cancer. Um, again, uh, you know, showing evidence of a significant outcome improvement in those patients. And we have now multiple layers of targeting this receptor again, different ways. And finally, we moved this to colon cancer. Where the initial data has again suggested that in, a, in those two to three percent, so it's a small percent of patients who may uh, uh, overexpress uh, the, the 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 receptor based on a gene amplification, that uh, ultimately what what we see is that we can get very similar results to what we've seen with breast and with 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 gastric cancer. The good news is that uh, you know we're finding more and more. Uh, targets to go after from mutations in, pro, in, 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 in genes like Kras, uh, BRAF, uh, uh, fusions, meaning you know two two pieces of, of, of chromosomes of DNA material coming together, creating essentially a, a, a level of instability in the cancer and driving it, uh, uh, driving the cancer process, and being able to target these fusions. Uh, ends up in in some significant responses for patients who have these NTRK fusions or uh, uh, some other fusions in cholangiocarcinoma, again, uh, the bile duct cancers and FGFR fusion that is targetable. And these applications continue to expand quite significantly. So last uh, word on uh, on these uh, developments is, uh, you know, most of uh, how we determine the presence Uh, or absence of these important alterations uh, to allow us to be more precise in targeting uh, tumors uh, come from assessing cancerous tissue. But more and more uh, across malignancies, we're moving to what we call liquid biopsies, meaning essentially uh, being able to uh, detect circulating cancer DNA uh, from the bloodstream, uh, which essentially will give us a good idea about, many of these alterations without the need for a biopsy uh, or repeated biopsies. Uh, now, it's not perfect yet. It, it's mostly a complement uh, to the tissue. Oftentimes when there is not t- no tissue or not enough tissue, uh, it can replace it. Uh, but I see that in, as we move to the future, um, most of our understanding about how uh, to, uh, uh, you know, come by with these specific and precise medicines in oncology that we move more and more towards uh, liquid biopsies. Thank
2: you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bakaisab. That was really outstanding, stellar presentation, and really explaining in more detail about the how the biomarkers work in precision medicine um in, in predicting response to treatments. Just wonderful, wonderful news for many of our participants on the call today. Thank you, and I know you'll be on for the Q and A, so questions as well. Our next uh, speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr, and Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, Division of Cytopathology, Pulmonary, Gynecologic, and Molecular Pathology, Hospital Pathology Associates, PA, Alina Health Laboratory, Alina Health Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist and key questions to ask your pathologist and healthcare team about diagnostic technologies and biomarkers. It's my pleasure now to Uh, introduce to you my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr.
1: Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to talk to you about how pathology is important for cancer diagnosis and biomarker testing. And I'll be repeating some of what the other speakers have covered about, about pathology, but hopefully the repetition will help you with your learning about this really complicated topic. Um, first, I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. So, every time you get your blood drawn or a biopsy or you have a surgery, a pathology laboratory handles those specimens from you and performs tests on them. So, for cancer, everything from body fluids to blood to small biopsies to surgical resections go from a patient to pathology for more testing. And a pathologist is the doctor that leads that medical laboratory and is responsible for the test results, including making a diagnosis of cancer under a microscope. So next I'll talk to you about how those biopsy and surgery specimens get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and for biomarker testing for choosing the best therapy. So once a tumor is discovered, some sort of minimally invasive biopsy is usually taken if it's safe to do without doing a big surgery. And a doctor may take a small piece of the tumor by grasping it with a forceps or inserting a small needle into the tumor. And uh, as many of you may have experienced, there are a variety of clever methods that have been devised to get these tiny biopsies, for example, through the skin with guidance from imaging from a radiologist or through a scope inserted through the throat or through the rectum by a gastrointestinal doctor or a lung doctor. Uh, And a tumor can be cancer or it can be something else like an infection. So it's really important to have a diagnosis by a pathologist. Only a pathologist can tell for sure the diagnosis by looking under a microscope. Sometimes a pathologist will be available even uh, with a microscope during the biopsy procedure itself to look at those cells immediately on glass slides and tell whether or not there's enough tumor material for the diagnosis and for the biomarker testing that we've talked about. Um, Some of this tissue will go in a small bottle then to the laboratory for further testing in addition to those glass slides that might have been made in the room during the biopsy. And so after that biopsy, all of the slides and bottles of tissue will go to the laboratory, and the tissue in the bottles is processed into a little block of wax Um, called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded processing, and that block of wax is cut into fine, thin sections that are also placed onto glass slides to look at under a microscope. The pathologist looks at all of the glass slides and tries to decide what the tumor is that was biopsied. If we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine what kind of cancer it is. Um, As previous speakers have talked about, determining the primary site of the cancer or where the cancer started is the most important first step in determining the best therapy. So most cancer therapies that are available, with some exceptions now, are studied knowing the type of cancer. And FDA approvals for such therapies are usually based on a pathologist determining the cancer type first. So the pathologist will determine if the tumor is lung cancer, or colon cancer, or breast cancer, or some other type of cancer. And then each type of cancer also has different subtypes and grades. So, for example, lung cancer types are divided into adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, small cell carcinoma, or other uh, less common subtypes. These specific subtypes of cancer are sort of a biomarker in themselves in that they have different approaches to therapy. This process of making a diagnosis usually takes only a few days, But sometimes it can take a lot longer depending on if the tumor is common or of an unusual or rare type that requires more diagnostic testing to make the diagnosis. So after all this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive a diagnostic report from the pathologist containing the final diagnosis for the tumor and any tests like immunohistochemistry, which was previously mentioned, uh, that were used to make the diagnosis. Biomarker testing may also be started at this point, depending on the diagnosis. The cancer center, for example, where I work, has very specific rules for which tests the pathologist orders based on the cancer type and stage, so that every patient gets that basic, nationally recommended testing that's needed to determine the next therapy. Biomarker testing uh, may include molecular testing, such as next generation sequencing, looking at cancer DNA mutations or gene fusions, or may include immunohistochemistry, uh, which is stains for proteins like pdl one estrogen receptor, mismatch repair proteins, and other proteins, uh, where the pathologist looks for what proteins the cancer is making. Now, some of these tests may only take a few days, like the immunohistochemistry stains, um, but other tests, like next-generation sequencing, typically take as long as two to four weeks, and this is because of the technology that's required to obtain the required to obtain the results. The the technologies are getting faster, um, but I can tell you that even in my laboratory, where uh, you know we push the technology really hard and have really tried to gain efficiencies, you know we tell patients that they should expect. A turnaround time of one to two weeks and on average we turn around reports in about eight days from the time of the order. So be patient with us because the results are are very important and I encourage you also to keep a copy of your pathology and molecular reports to help your doctors understand your medical history especially if you see doctors in different systems that don't talk to each other electronically. The diagnosis and biomarkers could even be important, you know, years down the road uh, when your memory fades of your cancer diagnosis and treatment. So keep these reports available. For example, um, if I'm looking at a biopsy of a lung nodule in a patient that I know has a history of a specific type of breast cancer with a certain biomarker profile, that information is going to save me a lot of time. And it's going to save you a lot of money in in making the correct diagnosis for that lung nodule. So um, finally, I was asked to cover some key questions to ask your care team regarding pathology and biomarkers. Uh, First, when your cancer is diagnosed, read your pathology report and, and ask questions about what the diagnosis means. Sometimes a cancer diagnosis is difficult for the pathologist. So you should ask your cancer team if your diagnosis might benefit from having a second opinion. Just like having a medical second opinion about your cancer treatment, your pathology slides can be sent to another pathologist to review the diagnosis for agreement. Second, ask your oncologist whether all of the standard biomarkers for your diagnosis have been performed that could influence treatment at that point. As I previously mentioned, there are national guidelines for which biomarkers should always be done for certain cancer types and stages. It is possible that not all of the biomarkers could be performed because the biopsy was too small. Uh, In those cases, you should ask your oncologist whether it would be worth trying another biopsy to get all of the biomarkers done, uh, or if a blood test might be a good substitute to detect the biomarkers in your tumor that could influence the decision for your treatment. Um, I would recommend asking if the tests that are being recommended are covered by your insurance. If the tests are expensive or won't be covered by insurance, um, ask if those tests are truly important for the decision-making right now and if there are resources to help you with the financial burden. Often, the decision-making for first-line treatment includes pretty targeted biomarker testing, uh, while the decision-making for second- and third-line treatments is more complex and can require more extensive biomarker testing. Sometimes there are cancer center-specific resources or drug company-sponsored testing or clinical trials that will help you cover the uh, cost of biomarker testing. And a lot of laboratories out there now have patient-specific programs to work with you and your insurance up front to make sure that the costs are, are predictable so you'll know how much it costs up front Oftentimes, it's sort of a nominal fee beyond what the insurance will cover. So, I encourage you to t- to learn about those and take advantage of those programs when they're available. And that is all I have for today. I'll be happy to take questions at the end. Uh, I'll turn over the conference to Dr. Mesner.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding, just a wonderful presentation. Um, and really clarifying for everybody the very important role of the pathologist, and also um, and how to discuss uh, with your with your pathologist and healthcare team about diagnostic technologies and biomarkers. So thanks for covering all of that, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A.
1: Um,
2: and our next speaker is uh, Dr. Monica Franco. Dr. Franco is policy analyst, public policy and advocacy. Association for Molecular Pathology, and that is our partner group on today's program. Today, very appropriate group to partner on this program today. And Dr. Franco will be addressing the Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP. They have free resources for people living with cancer and coping with cancer, and um, we'll give information about how to contact them. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Franco.
0: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure to be on this panel, and thank you all for attending. So the Association for Molecular Pathology, or as I'm going to call it for the rest of the talk, AMP, is a medical professional society that represents over 2,600 molecular diagnostic professionals. Our members are molecular pathologists, qualified doctoral scientists, and medical laboratory scientists who are involved in designing, performing, and interpreting molecular diagnostic tests. While our members perform tests for many different aspects of healthcare, including COVID-19 diagnostic tests, they are highly involved in molecular testing for cancer. As discussed in such detail by our panelists today, molecular professionals perform biomarker testing to help determine a patient's prognosis and guide the best treatment plan, as well as performing molecular testing to determine a person's risk of developing various types of cancer. AMP is very involved in patient care, Um, by producing clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists and ordering physicians, in addition to our strong advocacy to help improve insurance coverage for these crucial tests. AMP has also become closely involved with patient advocacy community and launched a patient-facing website. This website provides an overview of what occurs in a molecular diagnostic lab, in addition to descriptions of these different types of molecular tests such as DNA sequencing. It also contains frequently asked questions by patients and free infographics. Additionally, um, it is frequently updated with educational resources. The link to the patient-facing website will be distributed after the call today. And we invite you to look it over, and please feel free to contact us with any suggestions for additional materials um, to put on our website. Um, And with that, I will hand it back to Dr.
2: Menzner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Franco, and and we will be sending everyone um, this information from um, the uh, Association for Molecular Pathology, so you'll be able to have really great information at your fingertips um, that you'll be able to access from uh, the the Association for Molecular Pathology. So thank you so much for your outstanding presentation, and um, we'll look forward to your questions during the Q&A. And I'm Carolyn Mester. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care's free services and programs. Um, many people contact Cancer Care. We're a national organization. They contact us by calling our HOPE Line or visiting our website. Our HOPE Line is 800-813-4673 and website www.cancercare.org. And um, we have about 40, about 40 um, oncology social workers. Um, they pretty much answer our phone when people call. And when people call us on the phone, the Hope Line, we often have a specific question they're asked calling about. But they also um, may also have other needs as well. Now, what does Cancer Care actually offer? So we offer um, both practical, financial, and co payment assistance, we offer support and online support groups. We offer coping circles. We offer uh, these workshops and publications, and so um, you can simply uh, either call us on our Hopeline or visit our website, and you'll be getting all the information of how to access or any of the information that was given off today. Um, that will be um, you'll be getting that um, from the Survey Monkey that you'll receive after today's program. So it's not just an evaluation of the program, but it's also going to include some resources for you as well. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, to the questions. I know you, many of you have questions, we have quite a few already in queue, but I'm going to ask Regina to explain to you how to queue up the questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question.
2: So we have many questions from our participants. Um, so this is for Dr. Vikaisab. As someone diagnosed with gastric cancer, do I need to make sure my doctor is doing biomarker testing, or is it not always necessary? Dr. Vikaisab, if you could address this.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, well, the short answer is uh, there is an absolute need for biomarker testing in this in this disease, in gastric cancer, there are uh, uh, at least two uh, targets of relevance, and that would be uh, PDL1 uh, to to assess uh, for uh, for immune therapy and the role of immune therapy here. Uh, there is HER2 essential, and that's in about 10-15% of patients, which would also direct uh, the doctor for. Uh, picking a uh, 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 biologic like Uh And then there is an emerging target now, Claudin 18 which uh, doesn't have an approved drug yet, but it's coming uh, down the pike. Uh, positive study presented at ASCO-GI. Uh, and there are other uh, low, lower yield targets that would be of interest, but these would be the most important ones. So the, the short answer is absolutely yes.
2: Thank you very much. Um, and um, for Dr. Morrow, um, what has diagnostic technologies archived in blood cancer research?
4: I'm sorry, Colin, can you repeat that? About yeah, archive? Sure.
2: It I, As to I say, what has diagnostic technologies, it says archived in blood cancer research? I wonder if it means contributed to blood cancer research.
4: Yeah, I think I can answer that question. Um, okay. So when we take a sample and query it for a variety of different questions, then it's archived or it's stored. Um, you know, we'll know a snapshot in time about a cancer. I think with blood cancer, sometimes we see mutations or evolution or new mutations. Sometimes we need to go back to the origin uh, of a cancer to understand um, something that might help us with treatment later on. Um, those are some of the reasons why um, archived samples are important. Um, sometimes if someone has leukemia that kind of into remission, and then if they have a return of the cancer, we're – Often going back to see if it's the same cancer. Sometimes we see treatment-associated cancers, or you know, sort of a different. It may it may be fooling us. So, so um, it can help in a primary diagnostic sense. It can help in a treatment evolution sense. It can help in a in a research sense. For if, if the if the questioner was asking, what do we do with these archive samples? They can be uh, used for re- uh, multiple different studies. I. I have samples from patients of mine with myeloproliferative disease where my colleagues in the lab who are fantastic um, politely ask for for small aliquots of it because they're doing different projects through the years. And one one sample from one day from one patient can provide answers for multiple different experiments. So archived samples are really
2: important. Excellent. Excellent. Um, And um, for Dr. Kerr, um, what is the difference between cancer genes and biomarkers?
1: That's a good question. Um, So cancer and every other normal cell in your body has genes, and the genes are basically the instructions for uh, how the cells are supposed to um, make substances and function and grow. Uh, And in cancer cells, um, sometimes the way that the genetic programming um, is happening in those cancer cells changes, either through a change in the sequence of the DNA code uh, or the um, gene is sometimes what we call amplified. There are more copies than should be there in the normal cancer cells. Or sometimes, as we talked about, the um, genetic material can actually rearrange and fuse differently um, than in the uh, normal cells. And so in the cancer cells, you might have this gene fusion product that makes a particular uh, protein that's targetable with the drugs. So when we're talking about biomarkers typically what we're talking about is detecting those changes in the cancer cells that aren't present in the normal cells uh, or in this setting of hereditary cancer they might be present in both the normal cells and the cancer cells, but they um, cause the cancer cells to grow in a way that's targetable when there's um, more mutations down the line. So um, when we're talking about genes, every cell in the body, including normal cells, has genes, but those genes can have changes then um, that are biomarkers that we can detect in the laboratory to determine whether or not um, there's a target for therapy in the cancer cells specifically.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, for Dr. Franco, what is tumor profiling? Can you explain? Um, Sorry, can you repeat the question again? Yes. Um, What is tumor profiling, and can you explain? Um, I myself
0: am not a molecular pathologist, but if you do go to our website, we have multiple examples of definitions um, that people can go to get that answer.
2: Okay. Thank you. And and Dr. Kerr, do you want to address that as well?
1: Sure. Yeah. So... Tumor profiling um, typically refers to sort of a a larger test, kind of looking for those um, either common or uncommon biomarkers that might occur in a cancer. Um, So when I think of a tumor profile, I think of sort of a large next-generation sequencing test that's looking at as many different sort of aspects of a cancer as, as we might be able to detect. And that can be really helpful in some cancers that are sort of rare and don't have good targeted therapies to sort of pick out something that in the metastatic setting um, uh, might be targetable after first-line therapies have failed. Um, or might be helpful up front in, in metastatic cancer and in, in determining whether there might be a target uh, that could be helpful, especially if a patient is too sick for chemotherapy. Uh, or in addition to chemotherapy, for example. So tumor profiling is sort of um, a broad test for a number of biomarkers all at once.
2: Excellent. I want to thank all of our speakers, and I actually want to ask each of our speakers before we conclude the Q&A to just give a quick takeaway. So I'm going to start with um, Dr. Moro, then Dr. Bakai Saab and Dr. Kerr and Dr. Franco. So I'd like to just give a quick takeaway. So Dr. Moro, do you want to go first?
4: Sure. I think the takeaways are that um, we've come a long way. Um, our technology almost is outpacing our clinical therapeutics, which is a great problem to have, and our collaboration between all different facets of of medicine pathology and clinical medicine and all the key members of the care team, as well as the patients and their family. We're, we're all a team together. So, you know, asking about trials, understanding what the, these tests mean and why they're important and why, I have to have them done or why I should have them done and how they're going to drive my treatment. So important. Um, So if we keep working together, I think we're going to really crack the code even further. And I'll just say that 20 years ago, um, or a little over 20 years ago, when medicine I have worked on called Gleevec was FDA approved, there were no targeted therapies in cancer. All we had is what Dr. Chris mentioned, you know, the most important things, which was hormone receptor status for breast cancer and hormone treatment for prostate cancer. We've come a long way.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Bikasab?
5: Yeah, I mean, just to add quickly to that, that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we are moving to a world where uh, I think it, it, it becomes incredibly key uh, to uh, uh, test every, every tumor for at least the most relevant um, alterations that would help us direct treatment. Uh, and then eventually, you know, a more universal um, deep sequencing of all of all tumors, which which we do, um, and that 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 almost becomes a universal need across uh, all all tumors that we treat and all patients we treat. Um, you know, there are certain limitations outside uh, uh, the U.S. and the Western world in terms of access, but hoping that access will become universal and across. Uh,
2: you know, all nations. Mm. Such an important point. Thank you so much, Dr. Bakaysaab. And Dr. Kerr?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the most difficult thing that I encounter in my practice uh, with biopsy specimens and with patients that are working across different healthcare systems is that, you know, sometimes the the healthcare systems talk to each other in terms of their medical records, and sometimes they don't and, and sometimes patients survive cancer so long that the records aren't available anymore and so i aren't at least easily available anymore and so I really encourage you to keep track of those pathology records in particular in the biomarker testing results, either electronically or keep a paper copy because um you know as you go through your life um, with cancer and and um, come across, you know, new challenges with your health or, or seeing a new doctor, it's just so helpful to me as a pathologist to know that history when I'm looking at a biopsy specimen. So I just I really encourage you to stay on top of it, even though it can be stressful to kind of organize that stuff, um, keep track of it.
2: That's an excellent point. And, and Dr. Franco?
0: And I would say that these are really complex issues, um, cancer, infectious disease, There's a lot of questions that one could ask, and my key takeaway is, you know, we partner with a lot of other patient advocacy communities, so on our website, we have links to other cancers, um, lung cancer, brain, et cetera, et cetera, and really having this information can help you make your informed decisions or at least make you more comfortable with molecular tests. We have experts helping us design our infographics and other parts of our website, so please take advantage of that and help yourself understand your own
2: health. And I think that's my final. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Franco. Excellent. An excellent resource for everybody as well. And I um, just want to thank all our speakers. It's been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants for all asking such great questions. Now, I do want to comment because I know we have many more questions in queue that we're able to take. So I do want to comment on that. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you Who are still in queue and have this question that you wanted to ask but didn't get asked today? Um, Please take the information you learned today and bring it back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know you the best. They have your medical records in front of them, and it's a great, great location to actually ask your questions. And uh, these, that your team, your healthcare team, can assist you with many different concerns that you may have. Remember, your healthcare team consists both of your Oncologists or hematologist oncologists, but also consists of a whole full range of others in terms of oncology nurses, patient navigators, oncology social workers, financial navigators, oncology social workers. It's really a very large team of people. Radiation oncologists, just a whole team of people. And basically, um, so your own healthcare team has a number of members who could, who could help you with any concerns that you may have. Again, I don't want anyone to leave the call feeling that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And we will be sending you, of course, the SurveyMonkey. and then there will be lots of resources that you can access in addition to completing your feedback about today's program. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.